It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Utah's best athletes count on flexibility, speed, strength. And the Jazz pick up their 22nd assist. So they count on University of Utah Health. Brielle Soleil puts this game away. And so can you. Leading doctors, a world-class environment, award-winning innovation, care to be great. 14 unanswered by the Utes. University of Utah Health, caring for Utah's best and yours. Schedule your appointment now at uofuhealth.org slash care to be great. All right, hello and welcome to the Utah Puck Report. Uh, Jay Stevens here. Uh, kind of cool co-host today is my son, Tegan Stevens, is helping out. He's brought uh, one of his former professors, Dr. Leslie Podlog. Goes by Les. Uh, you're in sports psychology, you've done kinesiology, and you're here today to kind of help us get from injury to back to performance. But first, let me let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your history. Yeah, well, so uh, great to be with you, uh, Jay and Tegan, and yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. So I'm originally from Canada, and, and certainly as a Canadian, I know your focus is on hockey uh, and hockey-related issues, so it's it's definitely uh, something that was part of my youth growing up in, in Calgary, Alberta, and um yeah, I uh, uh, got into the sport of amateur wrestling, I guess, uh, when I was younger, my brother got into it, and then I followed his lead. and uh, And it's a very physical sport, very technical sport. Uh, that is the amateur wrestling. And uh, unfortunately, by the time I went to university, and I studied at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, and uh, I seemed to have one serious injury after another. So I tore my anterior cruciate ligament three times and I had a dislocated shoulder and dislocated elbow. And, and uh, so I guess it was these experiences that led to my academic interest in kind of better understanding uh, not just the obvious physical challenges associated with injury, but the psychological demands that it placed on athletes. And so I was fortunate to uh, pursue my graduate studies. I did a master's in, in sociology at Simon Fraser. And then I went on to pursue my PhD at the University of Western Australia in Perth, Australia. And uh, there I focused on uh, the psychological challenges that athletes face uh, after a serious injury. And then just trying to develop some strategies to help them recover and, and return to play, which for many is, is their uh, preeminent goal. And so uh, for the better part of the last 20 years or so, much of the research that I've done has been uh, dedicated to that topic. And uh, I've moved around a little bit. I uh, did my studies, as I mentioned, in, in Australia, and then for several years, I worked in a small town uh, called Bathurst uh, at Charles Sturt University and 
taught sport and exercise psychology classes and kind of continued my research uh, um, looking at um, uh, adolescent experiences with injury and then also sort of parents and how they try to support athletes. And um, I've since moved around. Uh, I was uh, at Texas Tech University, then at University of Utah. And and, uh, I just recently took a position as a professor here at the University of Montreal. Yeah, so now you're right in the heart of hockey. Montreal doesn't get, I mean, that's, it doesn't get much more serious than that. That's, and that's a hard place to play too, yeah. Yeah, well, definitely. As uh, I was mentioning before we started recording, uh, it was fun to recently get out to a Canadians, uh, Montreal Canadiens hockey game and, and definitely uh, the Quebec, Quebecers take hockey seriously and it's a sport that uh, a lot of youth participate in and uh, and it's also one of course where injuries both musculoskeletal injury and concussion are um, you know common and and I suppose increasingly in the news or uh, you know there's greater concern about the effects of of injury and and uh, head trauma for instance and so yeah, it's always uh, certainly a key challenge, I suppose, in the career of any athlete. And um, so, you know, always uh, something that's pervasive, but something that uh, most athletes contend with at some point during their hockey career. So, yeah, yeah. so for, for me in particular, and, and I know as a goalie, you know, our injuries are always a little bit different than the forwards, but um, I can remember a time taking – I took a shot to the throat and, you know, that obviously had some trauma with it. I spent the night in the hospital. Um, I took, I think I spent the next day in the hospital. They were really worried about swelling. So, and then the next day I'm back on the ice and there wasn't a lot of, Oh, okay. You're hurt. Let's you're recovered now. Get back at it. But I think for every athlete, whatever the injury is, if it happens during play, that's gotta be inside your mind. And I know, at least for the next, it wasn't just a couple of days, like at least for the next month that I got on the ice, I was thinking about that slap shot that hit me in the throat and how bad that hurt. And, yeah. you know, you, you have that psychological puck shyness or whatever we call it, but it, there's a block there. So even if, if it happens to your knee or if it happens to whatever the injury, immediately everybody thinks, okay, we got to get him healed. We got to get the, the bone fixed. We got to get the muscle back together. But Nobody really talks about that psychological part. And it's hard to go from where you were as an athlete before that injury to recovering and then being back there psychologically. So yeah. like, do you have guidelines? Like how, how do we start addressing this? Yeah. Well, so it's, it's a great point. I think often or traditionally when you certainly when you're trying to get athletes back into the, their kind of training environment or competitive play, there's a, primary focus definitely on the the physical aspects of the injury and kind of the biological healing but uh more and more there's lots of evidence to suggest that just exactly what you said that you know just because an athlete may be physically ready doesn't mean they're mentally prepared uh and and sometimes there's maybe a lot of pressures that the individual internalizes or especially in a sport like hockey, you know, where there's a culture of being tough and kind of working through pain and injury that uh, the athlete may say they're ready, even if they may not actually feel mentally prepared to do so. So I think 
you know, there's a number of important steps. Like certainly one uh, key uh, thing is, is just legitimizing and kind of normalizing, if you will, the fact that it's uh, perfectly understandable to have concerns, apprehensions, worries about competing. And, and in your example, you know, if you take a puck uh, when, you know, someone's shooting a hard disc at you at uh, 70, 80, 90 miles an hour, it makes sense that you would not want to have that experience again, particularly if you incurred, you know, a serious injury that may kept you out for a period of time. So just, I think, first of all, kind of helping athletes to realize that it's, um, yeah, perfectly legitimate and, and normal to have those apprehensions. Often in psych- sports psychology, there's different strategies or techniques that we use to help people deal with fear or injury or fear of re-injury, for instance. So uh, one technique uh, that's commonly used is just uh, imagery or visualization, which is often used for different purposes. So it could be to help the athlete perform well, but it could also be to help them imagine themselves sort of gradually working through certain fears. And the idea there is rather than trying to avoid that, what you're concerned about, you have to sort of actively confront it, right? If you're always trying to avoid something that you're apprehensive about, then the fear just stays there. It's only by kind of actively working through it uh, that you uh, begin to develop a certain confidence in your ability to surmount the problem. So, you know, we can do that gradually. You might have the athlete maybe just um, kind of imagine themselves sort of incrementally or gradually working their way up so that they're doing progressively more difficult skills. So maybe they're just, first of all, just imagining themselves going to the rink and putting on their equipment or, you know, like stepping onto the ice because maybe that situation generates anxiety or fear or worry. So, you know, you kind of start, slow and then maybe build to the point where the individual feels less fear or worry or apprehension. Um, The other thing that we often try to do in sports psychology is just to um, have athletes think about how they interpret uh, fear or worry. So often we think of fear or worry as like a negative thing, something to be avoided. But in reality, you know, you probably you know, irrespective of injury, when you get into different performance situations, again, it's going to be pretty normal that you're going to have some arousal or anxiety or, but for the best athletes, they realize that that's typically um, what they need in order to perform well. So some of it has to do with the interpretation of your anxiety or your, your fear as, as something that you can actually use to your advantage, right? So maybe it's, Uh, you think, well, I'm going to, you know, because I'm a little bit concerned about getting hurt again, then I need to make sure I take preventative measures to avoid certain things. Or I have to realize that when I get into specific situations, I just have to be mindful of, you know, I'm not necessarily going to put my head sort of down when I get close to the boards because I don't want to hurt my neck, for instance. Or So kind of using... Uh, the uh, fear or anxiety as not something uh, to be interpreted negatively, but more as an indication that, okay, well, I just need to make sure I take injury prevention measures. Um, 
So, you know, those are just, I guess, a few examples of the kinds of maybe specific strategies that could be used to kind of help the athlete work through fears or concerns. Uh, In general, I would say when you're working with the athlete who's returning, there's three main kinds of issues that tend to uh, be important to address. One is to help the athlete develop their sense of competence. So for many injured athletes, they lose the sense that they're capable or proficient or that they will be able to perform as they once did. And so, you know, whether it's, again, maybe using imagery or setting specific goals, um, you know, maybe it's they're having kind of irrational thoughts. It's like, well, you know, I'm the only one who this has happened to, or it's worse for me, or, you know, uh, maybe they're sort of um, taking uh, one example of an athlete who didn't return, whereas they could find numerous examples of athletes who do return, uh, but they're choosing to look at sort of, you know, they're pulling the one negative example and not looking at other examples that they could be looking at. So one one thing is you want to employ different strategies to help develop their sense of competence. The other kind of uh, issue that is common for returning athletes is they lose a sense of autonomy or a sense of control. And so they may feel like they don't control their body or the timing of their circumstances. And so things like giving them choices in terms of their, which, you know, exercises they might want to do can make them feel like they have ownership over um, what they're, they're involved in with their recovery or giving them a rationale, like here's why you want to do this or why this may be beneficial for you, or even just sort of taking their perspective, because it's often easy for coaches, for instance, to say, oh, well, you know, like, you've got to do this, or to make them feel controlled, or coerced. And so, you know, sometimes just taking the athlete's perspective can make them feel like they have a voice, that they have a say, that they have some control over their circumstance. And then the third thing is, for rehabbing and, and often athletes who are returning, they don't feel connected to their sport or, um, you know, they may lose sort of their identity as an athlete. So just developing or integrating opportunities to them for them to feel connected to their sport or other athletes. So those are some principles, I guess, and concerns we try and address to help um, augment the uh, sort of return to sport after injury. Now, those are a couple of things I never even thought about there. T, do you have a question? Yeah. So I know self-determination theory, which you just kind of covered, was a big thing in our class. Um, I had a question related to relatedness. Like, what advice do you have for not only coaches, but teammates for helping their teammate get back from an injury? Like, what can they do to help speed up the yeah. process and make them still feel like part of the team? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think sometimes uh, teammates can be well-intentioned and and they, you know, may ask, okay, well, like, when are you coming back? Or, you know, sometimes that that can be a bit of a double-edged sword. They they may, on the one hand, it's it's great. I think when teammates just reach out and, and show an interest or, you know, let the injured athlete know that they they want the athlete to come back, but sometimes the injured athlete can also interpret that as pressure. And so, you know, just uh, I guess from a teammate standpoint, um, uh, being clear that 
uh, you know, they're thinking of you. And if, if the athlete kind of wants to talk or, you know, um, that, that that's, they're there for that. But also when they say that they want them back, that, you know, just being explicit that they're not trying to pressure someone because that can also sort of make the athlete feel a little bit more controlled that they're not, as I mentioned, autonomous in their return. Uh, and also, um, whether it's teammates or, or coaches, significant others can um, maybe identify or sit down with the athlete and say, you know, are there different ways in which you might contribute um, to staying involved or helping the team, even though you're not competing? So maybe it's finding other sort of roles, or maybe it's like helping the coach analyze the video of the game, or maybe it's just sort of using the player's skills and, and knowledge to benefit the team to stay involved in a way that doesn't necessarily involve the physical training to the same extent. Um, or whether it's the teammates again or coach, maybe uh, there's some opportunities, certainly as the athletes getting more and more active to integrate their rehab into some of the training. So maybe if they're doing like dry land training, then, Maybe there's times where the athlete can do some of their rehab, for instance, alongside their, their teammates who are doing training so that they don't feel too isolated or alienated. Yep. Oh. That's something I never thought about is that um, you're, you're getting pressure or you're putting pressure on somebody by asking them if they're all right or when they're coming back. And, and that happens in the fire service all the time too, outside of sports is that we have a, a firefighter get injured and then we're immediately like, you know, they go to light duty. So you'll see them bringing the mail around or coming and, you know, bringing equipment out from our headquarters. And every guy's like, Hey, when you, when you coming back, when you coming back, when you coming back, you never think about the, the external pressure you're putting on them to either heal too quickly or, you know, just that, that belonging cue that you're throwing out there. You're, you're changing their, Listen, I, I didn't think about that. Do you have another yeah, and I think it's, you know, again, maybe those comments are well-intentioned and uh, the, the athlete may, or, or, you know, the performer, the firefighter, as you indicated, Jay, uh, may feel uh, on the one hand, it's nice because maybe it's a reminder that they're wanted. But again, those comments can also be interpreted as, uh, you know, pressure or indication that, they need to get back. And, and sometimes, uh, especially, um, you know, on the, the, the mindset of wanting to get back sooner rather than later, on the one hand is good if it motivates the athlete, but on the other hand, if it uh, uh, pushes the athlete to get back prematurely, then clearly that may not be so good because obviously no one wants to get to return only to get re-injured or to, perform poorly or to, you know, not really ultimately be ready to actually return, but to do so anyway. So, um, yeah, I think it's just thinking carefully and explicitly about the, the communication. So again, the coach or the athlete may say, okay, well, Hey, we want you back. But, you know, when I say, or when I ask you, you know, when, when do you think you'll be back? I'm not doing that to pressure you. And just to be explicit in their communication, I only ask because, you know, we think you're a great teammate and, you know, and 
you know, or happy when you're back and those, those kinds of things, right? So just thinking about how uh, the, the comment could be interpreted isn't always done, but it's something that can be useful to consider. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I noticed along these lines, you have some research into how either extrinsic or intrinsic motivation plays a role in in recovering from injury too. Do you want to like briefly talk about what those motivation types are and how they play a role on recovering from injury? Yeah, uh, a great question, Tegan. So uh, intrinsic uh, motivation, I guess, uh, refers to broadly when, when people do or engage in a task for the inherent enjoyment or interest of the task. So they're, they're, you know, playing hockey because, um, you know, they love the feeling of skating on the ice or, um, you know, there's just, uh, the movement or, uh, of playing the game or, um, you know, they enjoy relationships on their team and the camaraderie or the bonding or, so there's features of the game in and of itself that are inherently rewarding. And, and that's the only reason you need to get them or to incentivize them, if you will, to do it is the, the game in and of itself is the incentive. Whereas extrinsic motivation uh, by contrast refers more to engaging in a behavior or an endeavor um, when one is um, induced by forces external to or outside of the activity itself. So the only reason I'm really playing hockey is because of the post-game beers, right? And I like to sit and have a drink afterwards. And if you take that away, then I really have sort of no main reason for doing this. Or um, it could be other things like, um, you know, I'm doing it for the trophy or I'm a professional player and maybe I'm at the end of my career. And again, uh, per injury topic, maybe you've had lots of injuries, but you feel like, you know, I don't enjoy the game quite as much as I used to, but I'm getting paid and I have another year or two left in my contract and, and I need this money to secure my family future. Um, so those, those sort of reasons are external to the game itself. But uh, I suppose the, the point is, is certainly both can be powerful drivers of behavior. So if you ask hockey players or athletes in general, why are you participating in sport? There may be a mix of different reasons as to why, but the question becomes to uh, what are the implications, if any, of 
when people do things for more intrinsic, more internal reasons like interest, enjoyment, satisfaction from the activity itself versus those more external um, uh, uh, rewards or, or it could also be like punishments. Like I'm, I'm doing this because if I don't, then I'll feel bad or guilty for not doing it. Or, you know, my, at a younger level, maybe you think, well, my parents said, if I don't compete in hockey, then they're going to take something I enjoy away from me. Right. Um, or they'll be annoyed at me. So uh, again, both the internal or intrinsic forms of motivation and the extrinsic can be powerful motivators or induce action. Uh, but I guess what we found in, in at least uh, two studies that that I conducted, one was with, uh, we had about 200, and, uh, 200 some odd athletes um, from different countries, including some were hockey players, um, but athletes across different sports. These were fairly uh, elite level competitors uh, participating in, in like semi-professional or professional or sort of varsity level sport. And, and we kind of asked them, okay, well, think about the uh, most recent injury that you've had. And we asked them about sort of these different kinds of motivation to return. So our question was, well, why, why did you return? What sort of drove you to or energized you to come back? And then we also asked them about how they felt or perceived their performance to be once they returned. And so uh, what we found was that the athletes who were more intrinsically motivated seemed to have more positive outcomes once they returned to sport versus those who were more extrinsically motivated. So, for instance, the athletes who were higher in intrinsic motivation reported higher levels of, um, uh, sorry, um, like uh, a desire to, uh, you know, continue playing the sport, or they perceived that their performances were better um, after their injury, or just as good or better after their injury as they were before, or they perceived that they had less uh, performance anxiety than athletes who are more extrinsically motivated. On the other hand, the athletes who reported higher levels of extrinsic motivation indicated that they were more likely to be worried about things like getting hurt again, or um, that they had higher levels of performance anxiety than those who were more intrinsically motivated. So in, in the one study that I'm referring to, we didn't necessarily ask them, well, why was that the case? Because we just gave them these surveys and we saw that there were these relationships between the different kinds of motivation driving them to the return and their self-report of how they were performing after they, they um, returned to sport. Um, but I guess what it shows is, is uh, or provides some preliminary evidence that in the case of an injured performer, the reason why you may be coming back may have implications for how at least you perceive you're performing once you actually do return. And so you know, it, it, there may be, uh, in this case, some benefits to being more intrinsically motivated. And, and so then our task as researchers is to sort of speculate and think, well, 
why, why might there be these relationships between more intrinsic motivation and and so you know more positive return to sport outcomes, so to speak. And and at least you mentioned this sort of theory in psychology. We like to use a lot of theories because they help uh, help us understand why a certain phenomenon may exist. So according to this one theory, it's called self-determination theory. The idea is when we're more intrinsically motivated, there's beneficial implications because when we do things for the inherent enjoyment or interest of the activity, it satisfies these three basic psychological or mental needs that all human beings have. And I actually touched upon them earlier, and that's to be competent, to be capable at what we do. In other words, we tend to like to do things we're good at or feel proficient at. We tend to, as human beings, want to have some sense of control rather than feeling like other people are kind of pulling our strings, like a puppeteer master, right? Who's kind of controlling our actions. We sort of have this need to feel a sense that what we do is under our influence or subject to our, our influence. And as human beings, we have a need to connect with others or to be related to other human beings. And so the idea, at least from this explanation, is is there may be benefits to doing things for intrinsic motivations because fundamentally when we do things for enjoyment, inherent interest, that it's more likely to satisfy those basic psychological needs. And so, um, you know, there... Uh, again, maybe some reasons why people, you know, you would want to promote the injured athlete um, to be intrinsically motivated. And so, you know, from a practical standpoint, then it's sort of like, okay, well, if we want to promote intrinsic motivation, that theory is also very practical because it suggests, well, if I want to promote intrinsic motivation, because there's some evidence to show it's helpful terms of how athletes perform, then then you can say, okay, well, what are some ways in which we can help the injured athlete feel competent? What are some ways which in which we can help them feel autonomous or control and to feel connected? And when we do that, we're more likely to increase the chance that they'll be intrinsically motivated. Um, so um, yeah, I, I think that's pretty interesting. I've never really thought about it like that, but you see, um, well, especially as a parent and as a coach, you see players that seem to just get out there and love the game. And you see kids that are out there that you can tell are maybe just playing because their parents played or whatever. They don't, they didn't know another, another path. Um, I didn't think about that helping with healing. I guess it makes sense, but does it, does that also, I know you've done some research on burnout. Is that, same cues there like intrinsic versus extrinsic or yeah well definitely there you know and some studies with some uh, colleagues from sweden we've uh found that and you know numerous uh researchers have found that burnout very much can be a motivational uh issue um that you know often um sort of uh Burnout is characterized by a number of different um, characteristics. So one is that you um, tend to start to 
devalue something that you once enjoyed, right? So I start enjoying an activity and then I become, you know, I, I feel more cynical about the activity or negative in how I think about it. Another is, so that's the first component is that you sort of devalue. Another is that you feel like you're um, uh, no longer experiencing success in, in your, the activity. Um, and then a third is that you're emotionally and physically exhausted. And uh, so that exhaustion seems to be a key kind of component, both physical and mental. And, and uh, there's some studies definitely showing that if you follow athletes, say, over the course of their season and you look at the beginning, if you ask them about their motivation, that they tend to, at the start of the season, be more intrinsically motivated. So they'll say things like, yeah, like I'm playing because I, um, you know, enjoy, again, like, you know, I just love running down the field or, you know, I, I like the feeling of passing the ball or of making a good play or, you know, just like features of the game in and of itself that are satisfying. And then, and if you ask them sort of what their burnout levels are, they tend to be low at the start of the season, which makes sense. And then, and then if you sort of follow them over time, uh, as their burnout levels tend to increase, so too does their levels of extrinsic motivation that they start to focus more on playing the game because well i'm tired and i'm fatigued but i don't want to let other people down or i feel like more there's more and more pressure towards the end of the season now to play well and win the cup or the trophy or to you know so these external reasons seem to be more salient and they those the higher the level of extrinsic motivation that also seems to be related to burnout. So just to clarify, when I say related, that doesn't mean it's causing burnout. It just means that there's, as one increases, so too does the likelihood of others, uh, of other, you know, in this case, burnout. But, um, you know, most sort of phenomenon, whether it's burnout or the effectiveness of one's return to play after injury, there's usually multiple factors at play that uh, are responsible for any particular outcome or behavior or state of affairs. Um, but definitely motivation seems to be linked to burnout. Uh, yeah. So no, it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Kind of wrapping up. I know you're on a time constraint here. Just like, things like takeaway points you want people to know about recovering from injury and then maybe like on the mental side kind of admitting you need help like how we can destigmatize mental health kind of yeah so i guess to your first question uh you know i suppose we've kind of talked a little bit about um just uh being sort of disentangling this idea that just because you're physically ready doesn't necessarily mean you're psychologically prepared. And, and I think, um, you know, whether it's the coach or the parent or a sport medicine provider, even just having some discussions with the athletes about um, what are their hesitations, um, you know, sort of, again, legitimizing the fact that it's perfectly okay to have some concerns as they re-enter kind of a competitive arena or, or say transition to higher levels of activity, I think is, is important and useful. Um, 
you know, we kind of talked about um, those sort of three concepts, again, of the competence uh, being important. So um, just thinking about ways, well, what, if anything, can I as a coach, teammate, friend do to help the athlete feel capable under what's often a challenging and frustrating time for the athlete? Um, you know, are there ways to give them sort of a sense of control? And, and I mentioned a few examples by like taking the athlete's perspective, giving them some rationales or um, giving them options and choices. Because if you choose to do something, then you're more likely to feel sort of volitional or a sense of control. And then just, you know, making efforts to reach out. Maybe it's just a text or a call saying, hey, just letting you know I was thinking about you and hope you're doing okay. Something as simple as that can sometimes go a long way or, you know, hey, if you feel like you want to come out and do some exercises with the team or how about we sit down and just meet and, you know, see where things are at and how you're progressing, those small little acts can sometimes make a a big difference in sort of meeting that need for connection. Um, And then I guess, uh, you know, I think more and more in terms of your point about destigmatizing um, um, you know, the challenges or, or kind of like mental illness, certainly in the case of in injury recovery, I think, um, um, you know, if I'm speaking with an athlete or, you know, you, the idea, if you ask questions like, well, to what extent do you think it's, is like motivation or concentration or, uh, confidence, important in your in your sport performance most of the time athletes will or coaches will say yeah sure that's important and and if you ask them well you know do you spend time training your sort of physical components of the game and they're like well of course I would so you know then if you can kind of get into some questions about well doesn't it also make sense to then sort of train the the mental component and that doesn't mean you're a head case just because you want to optimize your motivation or your confidence or your ability to concentrate that, you know, I think most athletes and coaches realize today, especially the mental part of the game is important, uh, whether it's the game of performing or the game of rehab. And, um, you know, just, uh, I guess, to um, try to put things in sometimes into sort of a performance language can help, right? Just as you would train these physical skills. So to training these uh, psychological skills is important and can be helpful in order to optimize your experience, to maximize your performance, to, you know, increase your, your well-being. Um, so I, again, I think there's also sort of these larger cultural shifts uh, that are taking place um, you know, documentaries. Uh, there was one, I think that Michael Phelps, for instance, um, did particular on like mental health and, um, you know, efforts by different high performance athletes to kind of um, suggest that, hey, they're human beings and, and um, subject to all the kinds of challenges that any other people face, perhaps more so given the sort of pressures that they face and the fact that they get a lot of attention, uh, sometimes not always so positive. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah, that's good. It's, it's crazy because we've just had a lot of that same stuff come up. Um, 
with one of our athletes that was uh, he's been on the show a few times and he went through a lot of stuff and he rehabbed the physical stuff but he also had lost his father while all this stuff was going on and he never rehabbed the mental part and he is now admitting two years later that i should have gotten help and i think it cost me my shot at playing pro or playing in the nhl he's still playing pro and we also, one of our frequent co-hosts is Jordan Parisi. He's a, he's a goalie that played at North Dakota, and then he was in the New Jersey Devils and Pittsburgh Penguins system. His brother is a superstar. And he talked about his best performances came when he was taking an hour before the game, mentally processing, going through what he thought he might face during that game. And he said, you know, a lot of it was imaging and going through that but uh, some of it was just taking time to, you know, check in with myself. You know, there, there was, there was the, the going through each part of the game, but there was also just being like, Hey, here I am. This is time to take a breath, time to mentally check in before this game. And I think a lot of athletes just don't even think about it. They just get there and they're like, I got to stretch my hamstrings or, you know, my back's a little tight. Got to see the therapist, but they never think, yeah, I need to take a second and just mentally check where I'm at and and be prepared. So. Yeah, no, those are yeah great points, and uh, you know uh, certainly to your uh, earlier point, Jay. I mean, uh, again, whether it's injury or or any other sort of phase that an athlete may be going through, uh, life is happening all around them, right? And uh, you know. Uh, uh, whether it's relationships, friendships, school, work, um, people are, of course, aren't just robots. And uh, life events and experiences can have, of course, this profound and severe uh, impact, positively, negatively. Um, and, and so, you know, um, there's actually like a scale that measures life events, occurrences, and uh, uh life event stress and those could be positive things maybe you get a new job that you worked long and hard to get but then also that new job may entail a whole bunch of other sort of stressors because you're in a new environment or you're interacting with new people or whatever it might be and so you know whatever's happening in one's life also can certainly come to bear on on their recovery on their sport performance so realizing that and and also, I agree completely, just, you know, sort of n- n- taking some time just to um, maybe not only sort of image or visualize what may happen in the game, but also just taking a moment to say, okay, well, like scanning yourself, sort of uh, what's happening, uh, how am I feeling kind of uh, coming into this practice or this game, just maybe taking a, a moment to take stock of where you're at and maybe what you need to do just to get into the right frame of mind to perform well, doesn't always happen, but as you suggested, may have lots of benefit. Doc, I can't, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I think this is honestly for me and where I'm at in my life as a, like as a coach and as a parent more than as as a player. I mean, it, it took me a long time to, Except, like, I can evaluate my own performance now and know what I need to, to fix as a, as a beer league goalie, you know, and I, I know if it's not my fault. But as a parent, as a coach, and seeing the, the pressure that's being put on the kids or, or the pressure that I put on my own son to perform, um, 
I'm just in a different place where I could talk about this for hours and just absorb everything you're saying. And I hope our audience is taking the same thing. And I know your time is precious. So I can't thank you enough for coming out and talking to us about it and, and get the ball rolling on and getting the mental health and getting these injured players back to feeling like they belong and that they could perform and, and the importance of that. So take it down. Yeah. I just want to thank you again for coming out. Uh, I know Injury is a sensitive topic, and I hope the people listening will take the advice they're getting. It's not just the physical stuff, it's the mental stuff. And I hope the coaches and teammates listen as well and learn how, like, it's not just – healing is not individual. It's, uh, like, group effort. Yeah, no, it's uh, uh, great to have the discussion with you both. And, uh, yeah, uh, that's uh, a great um, – comment to you and certainly uh you know the success of any one individual isn't just a product of that one person's effort but there's often a lot of support and sort of group work uh, that goes into helping the athlete achieve their their performance level and i guess one kind of final thought or comment uh uh is you know i think um some of the skills that i talked about earlier um, whether it's, you know, imagery or whatever, using any of these strategies that, that I've mentioned, uh, goal setting or, you know, um, you know, how one's thinking about the situation are always to some extent a work in progress. It's not like, you know, again, just in the language of physical skills, it's not like one ever fully or finally completely masters a skill forever and all time. Right. It's always a little bit of a work in progress. And I think the same applies to these mental or psychological skills, as we refer to them in the world of sports psychology, is that you're always sort of working to refine, improve. And, and that's kind of part of the process. So, um, yeah, it's great to be with you. And, yeah, thanks for the, the chance to chat and reflect. And, and uh, yeah, uh, Thanks for your time. Good luck on uh, going to those Montreal games. It's fun that the uh, I think the Cup's going to make a return to Canada, but it's going to be your native Calgary. <laughs> we, have, we have a Utah player playing for Calgary this year, so we're all yeah, yeah. fans. Yeah, uh, it's you know I feel a little torn now, and my, my son was asking me whether the Flames will be playing the Canadians, and I'm like, oh, at some point they will. Uh, so uh, that that'll be a fun, an interesting game to watch, I'm sure. So thanks, yeah, guys. Well, Doc, thanks again. And uh, we're just going to close it out right there. That'll be the Utah Puck Report. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. 
In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.